business owners likely will have only one shot to sell a business. Most don't understand what drives value and how buyers look at a business. Until now. Welcome to the How to Sell a Business podcast, where every week we talk to the subject matter experts, advisors, and those around the deal table about how to sell at maximum value. Every business will go to sell one day. It's only a matter of when. We're glad you're here. The podcast starts now. On today's show, I got to interview, and it was my pleasure, and it really was, because I got to interview Elliot Holland. Elliot is, I've been following him on Twitter for quite some time, and he always has some thoughtful comments about due diligence. And in particular, quality of earnings. And you may not know that term, but it's becoming more and more prevalent in the deal-making lexicon. And so I think what you'll find, and and certainly I did, is just, just how important establishing quality of earnings is. Whether you're a buyer or a seller or an institution, relying on financial data that's being shared is imperative to the success of a deal. And Elliot, oh my gosh, he, he shared so much and so many good stories about its application and, and the value that he brings to a transaction. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Elliot Holland of Guardian Due Diligence. I'm your host, Ed Mysigland. I help business owners learn what creates value in their business by interviewing people, people and ad, people and advisors and buyers and sellers who have been in the trenches of acquiring and selling businesses. Today, you know, it's going to be a special episode because one of the things that in my, in my world we're seeing more and more is a thing called Q&E. And I have been following this guy a lot along on Twitter for for quite some time. His name's Elliot Holland and you heard his bio before we got started, but he is he's the guy for this this work and I have learned so much and I'm certain you will too. So Elliot, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Uh, it's exciting information and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make it live. We're gonna have some fun. Right on. Well I like I said I talked a little bit about you know, your background before we got started, but is there anything you want to talk about just a high level about guardian? Um, yeah, we do, um, lower middle market and main street deals. Um, I believe better than anyone because I come from the buy side where I used to be making acquisitions in that part of the market. And what I mean is sort of under $30 million in purchase price or enterprise value. And so, it's not just an accounting firm with CPAs used to audit who are doing these analyses, but it's, it's a deal guy who used to sit for work with execute transactions, now managing a team of accountants, which means that the report is not just a piece of paper, but I can actually explain to the client what's important, what's not, how they're going to use it. And I think that increases the value of the work product substantially. Well, one of the things that that I was telling you before we got started is a lot of people don't know what Q of E is, where it came from and how, it, you know, why now? Why, why are we seeing so much of it now? So you mind starting from the beginning? Sure. So in public deals, if I'm buying Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Home Depot, Ford, those companies get audited every single year by two top four accounting firms. So when I go buy a share or if I wanted to buy the whole thing, there's infinitely well-known financial information at all times on these companies. For small private companies, there's zero of that. There's no audit requirement. Um, I'm an owner. Other owners will know this. Taxes are, are meant to be efficient. Yes, sir. And we make them very efficient. Financials are our best representation of what happened in the business. So the quality of earnings is, is no more complicated than an audit-like tool to help owners, buyers, and advisors in these lower middle market deals understand the cash flow and the financials of a business, particularly ahead of a big 
transaction. So why do they call it quality of earnings? The reason people call it quality of earnings is because businesses are valued off of a multiple of earnings. Earnings is no more complicated than profit. So if you're in business, depending on the size, you know, three to maybe 10 or 11 times earnings is what you will fetch in a price. And so for a buyer or a seller in a transaction, it's very important to understand what the true earnings are, which means unraveling some of the um, good enough stuff that can be in financials of all owners to make it specific enough so a financially inclined buyer can very quickly get to the price of a business and 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 pay owners the big checks that come with these deals. So I'm curious to know whether or not by doing this, if risk changes, like like if I'm if oh you know, tremendously. Right. You know, so so a multiple just reflects risk. And I'm curious to know, yes. you know, and we'll talk about it down down the road here, but I'm just curious to know how how the conclusion of your services changes the risk profile of the acquisition target. Sure. So my average deal is typically a sort of sub five million dollar enterprise value transaction, but we do many deals that are up to thirty forty million dollars. Okay. For most of my buyers, they are first time buyers. So I work primarily for buyers buying companies and 75% are first time buyers. So they come into the market saying, I want to buy a business. I think it's a wise investment. I'm not a financial person. I see a lot of risk around this financial area. I don't understand. And even my buyers who are very financial, private equity buyers, experienced buyers, they know that the packet of information they saw from the business owner or from the broker is going to be in a very favorable state. So Mm -hmm. let's just say tremendous risk because it's a $5 million transaction, $5 million worth of risk. After you do a quality of earnings and you know that the earnings and so therefore the multiple you're going to put on the earnings are within a very like small tolerance, the $5 million risk goes down to, I think this is plus or minus 5%, 10%. So now we're talking a quarter million dollars or a half million dollars of risk. And I could get more complex than that. It goes from the full hundred percent of enterprise value to five or 10% or less. And so now as a buyer or my client, I'm not worried about should I do the deal or not. It's should I ratchet the thing up or down a quarter million dollars? Should I structure it differently? Plus or minus a quarter million dollars. And that just puts everybody to sleep. Well, it's not going up. If I'm with the buyer, it's not going up. (laughs) Well, that's where your job is. And I mean, I got to be honest. Um, It all depends on the negotiation. I, I have seen it go. Both ways. But yeah. yeah, for my clients, I would not be negotiating <laughs> right. for the up on that. You know, one thing that comes to mind and I know and I'm no I'm going out of order and I, I of my of kind of my talking points, but I'm I'm curious to know whether or not the you know, does doing a quality of earnings report, if I'm a buyer and I'm using SBA financing, does this count as buyer's equity toward the transaction? That's a real that so, that's a real interesting dynamic. If I'm if I'm the buyer and I can apply this to to my deal. So it my understanding is it doesn't apply to equity. However, about half of my clients end up paying for the quality of earnings service through the transaction. Oh, okay. So they add it on as a expense, a cost in the transaction. So that <laughs> when the transaction goes for five million, they may tack on an extra yeah couple hundred grand for expenses and you can pay that fee through the deal. Yeah, I get it. I, I would. Yeah, I, I follow. Well, 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 here we go even further. So to your point, Ed, and I didn't see through it as quickly. Sorry, man. I, it's early. You're, you're, you're wiser than no, me. Yeah, I, I need another I, cup of coffee. I doubt it. <laughs> if I pay, if I'm a buyer and I pay for the quality of earnings, so I pay, you know, the 20, 30 grand for a quality of earnings and then um, out of pocket. And then I get reimbursed for that because I do that quite often. And the transaction pays my provider. Mm-hmm. Then essentially, 
that money that I would have paid out of pocket, I can now put into the deal as equity. Mm -hmm. So effectively, you do move an out of pocket expense to equity. Yes. Well, I'm just I'm just curious because if I'm a if I'm a buyer and if you know if I can apply this, this you know scrutinizing what I'm buying to my equity as opposed to tacking it on on the back end, I, I'd be I would have to imagine the. SBA and and the powers that be would find that a favorable strategy by most buyers. And and here's what happens that people don't recognize. So on over half the deals, I'm just going to say it your Ed, this is you're the buyer. Your SBA lender is calling me Elliot and saying, "What's up with this? Mm-hmm. What did this mean? Mm-hmm. Why is this represented here in the financials?" Okay. So what happens when there's not a quality of earnings in your deal? What it means is your bankers are making up negative answers to all these questions and docking either the price of your deal, the interest rate, the speed of your deal, how quickly it can get closed, or whether they want to do your deal at all. And so I think there's the equity piece of it, but it's also the SBA does not always require a quality of earnings. Sometimes they do, but even when they don't, the reality is the SBA can ingest a quality of earnings mm-hmm. so much easier than the typical stack of financials from a private business. So do you have any kind of exposure but for doing this kind of work? I mean, I, I, I'd have, I mean, I got to imagine, you know, just your normal errors and omissions and negligence kind of thing, right? Yeah, I think there's two or three types of exposure. I think there's the absolute legal exposure. Yeah. I think, and that is in my engagement letter, I I clearly state that, hey, there's no way in you know 30 days I'm going to get to the bottom of 30 years of financials right. for 0.1% of the transaction value. I will do my best given what the client's willing to pay for. So that's kind of the strict legal yeah. um, liability. Then there's like the document liability, right? So this document travels, your lender sees it, your equity investors see it. And the first two pages kind of say, hey, look, we did these procedures, but we didn't do these procedures. So you should understand that had we done more procedures, we could have gotten a more accurate answer. Then I think there's reputational risk, Yep. which is if you start doing poor work and you're in the market as often as I am, people start questioning your work. Yeah. And then the the value of the work diminishes. So there's there's liability. And it's also, you know, for me, I'm an entrepreneur. I've been on the buy side. Now I'm an advisor. All of my clients are putting up over a million dollars based on my advice. I take all of that yeah, serious. 100%. Now I, and and I'm with you. And 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 my my point from the exposure standpoint was was um procedurally. I mean, this isn't. This doesn't conform. Like, like as an appraiser, I I conform to USPAP, so the Uniform Prof- Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice. I got to adhere to these. This is how I build a report, or how right. I can deviate. So I was just curious to know the process and the you know where 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 does um, the level of assurance stop for someone like you? You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. No, I do. That's a great question. Here's what I would say. And I've been an expert witness on cases where fraud has been claimed in transactions against other QOE providers and and, and testified to the um, the help that a quality of earnings provides, but that it's not a silver bullet solution. The the assurance level is it is a lot of times tied to how good your provider is mm-hmm. and how many procedures you have done, um, which typically also implies a cost. Yeah. So what I would say after doing this for almost 15 years, you know, you're from almost any, nah, let me not, for most providers, if you get a good referral, you're going to get at least like a C, you know, I, a C valuable I get it. piece of analysis, right? If you are sort of financially inclined or you get like someone who has really good ratings, you're probably at a B level. Mm -hmm. I think to get to an A level, you really just need to be sure the procedures that you're getting done match the risk in the business. 
uh-huh. that you're buying. So like oh, a makes- business with a lot of inventory, you need to make sure that your provider is good with inventory. For a business that has, you know, like upfront payments for quarterly services, you need to make sure that that, that provider understands prepaids and unearned revenue. And when you get to that level, again, I think, and and, and here's where I, I love entrepreneurship and acquisition because it doesn't have to be audit accuracy. Sure. You just need to know is, is the business earning plus or minus 5% relative to what you thought, given all the yep. risk you know as a buyer and the multiple you applied to the business. Yeah. So within that sort of 5%, and I'm using five, no, no. maybe it's three or seven. Whatever. I think any good provider can get to that level of insurance minus the, what I would say, you know, 1% that are out there that if someone's been spending 25 years to be fraudulent in their financials, you have to be wary that some things are just really hard to catch. A hundred percent. Yeah. So what exact, I mean, what is the process? I mean, I'm certain some people have, you know, had reviews and audits, but I mean, what generally is the process to, for, for a quality of earnings report? Sure. So we'll send out a due diligence list that has information about the financials. It'll have bank statements. We'll ask for those financials, taxes, um, payroll statements, and other pieces of data, inventory lists, org charts. And what we do in our process is sort of triangulate data through different sources of the same information. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean, Elliot? So on a recent deal, um, e-commerce business in the Midwest. So their revenue is coming through their financial statements. You can see revenue. It's the deposits in their bank statement, not a lot of transfers. And it's represented on their taxes, net of tax stuff that you can do from that perspective. It's also in their operating system from sales aggregated across all their customers. So now I've got four different areas to see revenue. And what I do is, you know, there's typically always two to four areas where I can get any particular number of importance. And we're triangulating the data to see if all the different pieces of information are saying the same thing. And when they don't, But when they're a little off, we start asking questions to dig into more data to validate. When they all say the same thing, we feel more confident that they're accurate. I got it. So I'm I'm assuming everybody that that you work with tends to 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 use uh, uh, virtual data rooms. I I I I, I could only fathom, you know. Here I'm gonna I'm gonna start emailing you all of this. Although I have to tell a funny story when I started. Years ago on the buy side, I had a, uh, a partner who was in his upper fifties and, you know, the buyers can be, you know, at that retirement age. And, um, the, the guy was like, all right, well, what's your address? I'm like, what? <laughs> oh, you want me to send all this data? What's your address so I can send it? And I'm like, I'm on the phone. I'm like, flash drive. And my partner's like, no, Elliot, he wants to send all the financial. <laughs> We get we get that every, through the mail. We get that so you can scan them. So every once in a while, you get an old school uh, situation. Man, ninety nine percent of the time, virtual data. So, how I know a lot. Like when when we have been faced with quality of earnings, you know, or someone has requested it, you know, sure. everybody's like, "Well, I've got a CPA." So. How do I mean? Tell me the difference. You know, how do you respond to that? I'm not because you, you are a CPA, right? Yeah, you. I'm or, not. You know I have your team is I'm twenty sorry. plus that yeah. work for yeah. me. I'm I'm a Harvard MBA, yeah. so people tend to give me a pass. I know a little bit about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, you know your way around but, books. I get it. Um, so I I tend to use an example in their industry. So you know, I'll say you know, and divorce attorneys could do your contracts. In your business, but do you have a divorce attorney doing no, your contract? And the state planning folks could draw up your real estate trust, but is that who you have to do it? I mean, a runner in the hundred meters could also run a marathon. I, would you bet on hundred meter sprinters to do your marathon? Now, would the person know general how to run a race? Sure. But, um, what ends up happening is, and this is my general point of view on this, there's always like the cost basis bottoms up. Like, yeah. why would I spend any incremental dollar on anything, right? right? right. Which is the entrepreneur's first disposition. 
but I push them on bottoms down. So this is a $20 million paycheck. And you're quabbling over 20,000 bucks, 0.1%. You know, but they do. And you sit there and you're like, I, how in the world? And, and again, you, understanding that the business owner likely has has pinched and saved and scrimped and, and made those types of decisions. And that, it, it it doesn't matter how many zeros it is. It's, it's, it's the, the, you know, just the, the, the prospect I'm spending money, you know, you know, Ed, and I think when I started guardian, I used to lay out the, the logical based argument. And, and I started realizing like, who am I talking to? These are people who have in a rugged way made their own decisions their whole career. Right. And then what I started doing is making one or two statements. So like, um, you know, like say a person is doing like HVAC, I'm like, oh, well, I can just get my plumber handyman to do my AC system in my new house, right? Okay. And I tend to just stop now. Yeah. And typically the person I argue why it's too expensive, rah, rah, rah. And then a huge portion will come back a couple of days later when they've had a chance to think about it and and realize the error in their ways. And then that was one random example. But, you know, like people who are experts in their craft, you know, it's like, hey, you've been doing you've been doing professional um, excavating services for 30 years. Yeah. How about I go get a guy that's been out for two years to do the same job? What would you yeah. say to me about that? hundred percent. No, I, I, I do, I, I do something similar. I'm, I, I sit there and I'm like, it, I've never gone wrong going first rate. It, but no matter what I've bought and, and it's the same thing here, but the risk is so much greater. And so it's, greater. it's astounding that you would even consider going on the cheap when this when there's so much at stake. But and I can't tell you how many times this year somebody went with a cheaper QOE provider or their own financial analysis or somebody's best friend's cousin's CPA. <laughs> yeah. Um or accountant wink wink with no designation. And then thirty days before they close, they ring in me, hey man, can you fix all this crap that this person yeah. or all this crap that I screwed up. And it's always like, Hey, I just got this one question about working capital. And I get on the phone with them. It's like, no, your whole analysis is off, buddy. And you're supposed to close in 30 days. And I think, yeah. I think some folks believe that, Hey, I'll go as far as I can with X resource. And then if I get stuck, I can always go. No, yeah. these deals. And Ed, you make sure these deals move at a, at a healthy pace. And when the pace starts slowing down for any reason in these deals, everybody starts getting nervous. But they're not getting nervous about $20,000. They're getting nervous about my $20 million check Yeah. that I don't think buyer X has the money or what we call it, the heart to bring to the table. And now you've created $20 million worth of risk buyer Yeah. by skimping on $20,000 uh -huh. when the other reality is a third of my clients, Ed, are probably smarter than me in this stuff. I, Investment bankers, private equity folks, um, industry experts. But in a 60 to 90 day process to close, they need to go understand the seller, get to know the seller, get to know the operations, get to know the industry better, find a house in this new area, convince their family, wife, and kids to move. And their highest and best use isn't sitting in a bunch of financials doing accounting work. Yep. Well, you know, and the funny thing is that you sit there and you're like, how, how is it that you, that you do not see this. How, how, why would you, if you can minimize risk, why wouldn't you do that? Especially, I think I have a, I have a hypothesis. Hit it. And because I, you know, people always call different folks in this business unsophisticated. Ed, you've heard uh, sure. it. Brokers, sellers, buyers, yeah. everybody's stupid. No, I think everybody goes by their incentives. Um, even when they're skewed, I think a lot of owners have minimized their payment to accountants and lawyers for 30 years mm -hmm. and they have not paid a cent more than what they absolutely have had to in these areas where an extra thousand bucks 
three thousand yeah. bucks in any given year could have minimized ten, a hundred thousand dollars worth of risk, right? Hundred percent. And so they've gotten away with those thousand dollar lack of investments, and maybe yeah. I had three thousand dollars of risk, ten thousand. Now it's a twenty million dollar deal, and nobody calibrated that the new risk on the table that, was twenty million. That's the maximum risk most business owners have is the sum of their profit for that year. Now it's not the sum of the profit. It's four, six, eight times that. And I think people just don't recalibrate. Oh, that, that, I, so far, that might be the best thing that, that's come out of your mouth. That, that, that's a, that's a good one because, because you're right. I mean, most business owners look at, look at this kind of work as not this kind of work, but they're a CPA and attorney. I mean, it's a toll booth. I gotta, I gotta pay it to get yes. to the other side. Now it's, yes. now it's, no, we're, we're sizing up risk. This is this is quantifying and justifying the risk associated with your business and and the earnings obviously that go along with it. You know, or something like this, how much would you pay? And people don't do this, but if there was a service to really get like a 10-year go forward read on a potential business partner, right? Yeah. Or some yeah. other thing of oh, that huge that's, magnitude. That's, I won't talk about other partnerships yeah. of personal nature. Uh, I got it. But if you could actually really do this level of work, most of those things don't have anyone or don't have data at the level that you do in this. I think the other thing that gets people caught up at is they have lost faith in their accountant, but they're still paying them and they won't. They may not tell you that. And then they're definitely not going to tell my client, the buyer, that their accountant may not even know that. But. A huge portion of my friends that own businesses call me because they're trying to figure out whether a quality of earnings will help straighten out their accounting stack. So they're paying a couple grand, 10 grand, 20 grand a year for this stack of accountants that they still don't trust. Right. And so now you're asking the owner to pay another sum of money to a group of people who have messed up their trust over years. And I think that may be a secondary reason that we don't pry into enough around why folks Try to skimp on this, what I would almost call mission critical service. Well, and the funny thing is, um, it's, I, I guess the way I, the way I was looking at it is I just don't understand that. Like, for example, this, a couple of weeks ago, my kid, um, you know, she was having abdominal pain. All right. right. And, and it doesn't matter. It didn't matter who. I didn't ask how much it was costing. I wanted to make sure whatever was wrong with her was going to get fixed. And uh, you had a better example than me. Oh, uh, I didn't. I, Do you go to a head doctor about your abdomen? Do you go to a foot doctor about your heart? Right. Well, I, I don't know if it was better, but it, but it, I was thinking about from a cost standpoint. Oh my gosh, it it mattered nothing. All I wanted to do was make sure that whatever happened to her, she was okay. And the same thing from a deal standpoint that, you know what, we've got, you got to, how, if this is the deal you want, you should be willing to pay in order to ensure that you're getting the deal that you think you're getting. Yeah. Well, let me tell you a couple of examples because I think people love stories. Um, so I had a client about a year ago. This was a sell side quality of earnings. So this is where I was working for a person who was selling their company and they had had a friend who was in private equity who said, dude, you do not want to be fighting the equivalent of me without your numbers yeah. buttoned up. Go get a guy to do quality of earnings. I know this guy, Elliot, a guardian. So we're doing his work and he was gunning for a certain EBITDA mark because somebody had given him a above 10 X multiple. I mean, he was going to get paid, you know, 30 plus million dollars for this business. And he was kind of meandering through with a slow bookkeeper and limited mm -hmm. access and didn't want to make himself available. And then we got closer to the end of the year. And instead of this $3 million EBITDA mark, he thought he was going to hit. It was almost questions of whether the efficacy of his whole, accounting stack was even reliable. So now he's like, well, I just need to get a number so I can get these private equity folks to give me a valuation. And then he has a conversation with one of the private equity buyers. And he's like, look, Elliot, if I can just get this to $2.1 million of EBITDA, they'll still pay me the above 10 X multiple. And I can get this thing done in 30 days. In that case, had that person just been real about their true situation, gotten their numbers in order, quickly and been more available, they would have gotten a bigger paycheck sooner. Yeah. Let me tell you another example. So 
on the buyer side representing a, um, a buying client. I had a client who, and, and and a good advisor on the sell side would never do this, but it was a Canadian company operating probably 100 miles north of the U.S.-Canadian border. But they had financials in, you know, of course, Canadian dollars, and they had reported to the Canadian equivalent of IRS. Well, this broker thought it was a wise idea to instead of ask the Canadian accountant to do a U.S. dollar set of books, Jeez. to ask a brand new, friendly to the business brokerage, U.S. based accounting firm to completely redo the books, oh. not using the old books as a basis, but going back to bank statements, what they said was invoices and the rest. So initially, we're thinking, oh, it's just two versions of the same truth. No, mm -mm. these financials were completely different. And oh, by the way, the U.S.-based firm hired by the brokerage had left out 35% of the expenses such that EBITDA was affected by a bigger percentage than that. And so when we're looking at them apples to apples, just Canadian to U.S. dollars, they're 40% off. Now, here's the issue with... That now, do I believe the Canadian right. version, the U.S. dollar version, something else? Now you have seller, broker, Canadian account, U.S. account on the same phone call, and none of them can say, "Hey, the other person's lying." And so, for my buyer, what they what they earned by paying for their quality of earnings was they walked away from a five million dollar catastrophe. Sure. I mean, those folks would have been able to tell him cash basis accounting, accrual basis accounting, Canadians to U.S. dollar Forex adjustments, um, EBITDA adjustments. They could have ran circles around my client yeah. with enough excuses that any person that was reasonably going through the process would have given up. But the quality of earnings said, hey, there's no way this set of financials and this one can be true at the same time. Stop. Yeah. And so that's what people uh, are actually buying. They're buying. How do I get my behind out of five million dollars, 10 million dollars of risk? Or as a seller, how do I keep my five million dollar or 20 million dollar check coming yeah. without a bunch of shenanigans? Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> did, uh, did, you, did you ever follow it? Did it ever close? Not with necessarily with your client, but did it ever close ever? I'm almost scared to ask because I'd have to call yeah, the brokerage. I get it. I get it. Don't. And I, I don't want my client didn't buy it. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, I, so I've got four CPAs on staff here, and 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 the funny thing is they all run around and say, you know, the CPA was is is the most trusted advisor to the business owner, and there's and there's statistics about about that, and sure. but at the same time. I, I think an accountant has a lane, you know, and I, and yes. I don't, and, and I'm just, I think there's a, and I, and I, I hate to dump my, my accountants in with generalists, but I, I think they're specialists in this kind of accounting, you know, and I, cause I'm, I'm looking so, Ed, you're so right. I'm getting ready to jam it to them. I'm. I'm not. This isn't for you. This is for me because I'm going to walk down and, and and I'm going to say, I, yeah, you guys aren't. You may be the trusted advisor for for QuickBooks, but I'm just kidding. That, that's it for QuickBooks. I'm just kidding for taxes, for valuation opinions, for audits. Absolutely, but accountants and lawyers have terrible abilities to process any non-zero risk. Hmm. Yeah. At the top of the call, I said I'm a deal guy, entrepreneur who manages accounting. Yeah. So what that says is I manage a group of people who cannot Same. do well with any non-zero risk. And I'm a person who am used to paying, you know, two dollars and getting, you know, and dealing I, with, you know, a dollar or two of, of risk. And so I think when they come to this trusted advisor piece, I think what accountants, lawyers and other conservative compliance-based advisors miss is a lot of businesses taking risk and there's not really an advisor that can help people understand risk. Yeah. You know, and, and as we've been in, in our sell side work and, 
you know, I'm the grim reaper of business valuation. You know, we, we sit down and, and we talk about, you know, this is, this is the mechanics of how this deal is going to work. You know, just on the top, on a high level, you got to warm up to the fact that these are the risk areas and someone is going to scrutinize them and suppress your value. That's just the way the yeah. program works. I mean, yeah. So you, you have a choice. You can go back and fix it and, and reduce that risk and then, come back to the market or you can go to the market and understand how the buyer is going to see it. And that's to me that that is the um, at least on the front end. And, and I'm, and that's where I'm, I'm, I'm heading with this is how, if I'm a sell side person and we, and, and we started to talk about this earlier, if I can minimize the, 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 the back end retrade, after your work is done, why wouldn't I do that? I mean, so, you know, your, your fees, and, I, and I'm certain they get scoped depending on the size and complexity. But generally speaking, I have to assume that whatever I'm going to pay is going to be less than the consequence of the retrade on the back end. I have to imagine that. Oh, by orders of magnitude. So let me very quickly and I'm sure you tell people this all the time. Let me walk through a typical process of selling to private equity. They come in, they give valuations, and they know they're competing with other firms, so they're going to give the most favorable valuation that they think that they can actually stand up and not laugh yeah, about I get it. to get the deal locked up. Right. And they're going to say, subject to due diligence. They're going to know that most often their team of due diligence providers, both on staff and folks like me that work for them, are going to be way more sophisticated, have way more time, are going to be better at finding nuanced things and talking about the risk of them than the seller's representation will be typically only because of manpower. Right. So then they're going to start not just finding real things, which I think any of us would say, hey, we should find the real stuff. But what private equity will often do is they start nickel and diming about stuff and, and yeah. doing things like, well, you know, when I thought the top customer was was 15%, I was okay, but now they're 17 and a half and I'm having trepidations about this and I need to go back to my committee and see if we can still, and it's bull crap, Yeah, right? 100%. But what it does is it delays the deal two weeks and you're talking about 2.5% of your revenue as if it was, you know, God coming to earth and, and, and putting some stones right. and breaking them apart. And then also what's happening is it can be a situation where a deal closes or doesn't close, not because of real risk on a real deal, but because somebody was allowed to talk themselves out of a deal over some funky nuanced thing that didn't really matter. Yeah. Let me talk about a different process if a seller gets a quality of earnings. Um, it's almost like airing your dirty laundry before the thing starts. Yeah. So it's like, hey, I'm 30 pounds overweight. I'm probably going to have gout on my foot in a couple of weeks. Um, I, I I snore when I sleep. And and here's the stuff that you need to know. Don't you love me? You still got to yeah. love me. That's who I am. Yep. That's who I am. But I make good money. You know, I'm consistent. Yep. I go to church every Sunday. I take care of my kids. I'm funny. Um, look at all these great people that have spoken about me. So here's the packet of real information. Yeah. Do you want to deal with me or not? And in a business context, what that does for the seller is here's the money I've spent to give you a clear look at my business. Right. Here's the revenue by customer. Here's how an income statement should look, how the balance sheet should look. So now when that same private equity buyer comes and says, oh, well, I thought it was 15 percent and it really was 17 and a half. You say, oh, no, we said we were doing this deal on an accrual basis. The accrual basis is 15%. Mm -hmm. If you're telling me a 17.5 on a cash basis, then we're blowing up the whole deal because you're going against your contract. Is that what you're telling me, Mr. Private Equity Guy? Yeah. And so for your twenty dollars to $30,000 without having to do any incremental work on a Tuesday when you got some crazy call, yeah. you push them right back to the page in the analysis like, no, you knew this going in. And it makes it so much easier for like my sell side QOE clients. Their processes go so quick because yeah. they already have yeah. the playbook. Well, I was wondering whether that, that was one of my questions is, is how much faster does it go when, when you can have this as an amendment or an addendum to your SIM and you just hand it. I mean, I got to imagine it, it, it goes substantially faster. Tremendously quicker. And it's months. Yeah. 
here's here's why I had two deals in uh, this past year where I get called, hey, I'm going to be selling my business later this year. I think I want to, but I'm not sure, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to try to go it alone. I got these. I already got a buyer that sent me a letter of intent. We've signed up. We're good to go. We're good to go. Yep. So I've marked the calendar because it always comes back. And it's like, okay, so how long is your deal? 60 days. to Cool. Got it. So day 50, I'm like, hey, how's the deal going? Oh, well, they found this. Oh, well, they found that. Their quality of earnings said this. They said my my income statement is totally that. And then they're like, hey, man, I should have got you in. Can you come in here now and do something? And and the reality is uh, some of those times I am able to get in there and help kind of reconcile yeah. sort of buy side QOE to sell side QOE and get all the stuff going. But here's what the delay is. So out of the 60 days, 30 days into the 60, somebody said, I smell something I don't like. So now they stop their 60 day process at 30 days. And until you justify that what they thought going into the deal is actually true, that deal doesn't pick back up. So that may be two months, four months. And oh, by the way, here's how deal psychology works. If I think I'm buying, you know, a grade property on Park Avenue Mm -hmm. and I find out that there's one leak in one bathroom on the third floor. Now I want to check everything as a buyer. So you've given me carte blanche. And that's why those deals slow. It can be two, three, four months, six months quicker when you do the work up front. So if I'm a seller, I mean, how long does a Q of E, what's the shelf life? So that's a great question. Probably a year, but let me tell you why. Okay. It'll take us 30 days to do. Let's say I had a full data room today. Um, And that just means access to your QuickBooks, taxes, bank statements, which somebody should be able to get in 24 hours. Let's say I do the quality of earnings. That's a 30-day process, one month. What the quality of earnings does is it goes back three years. So as a buyer, let's say I get a quality of earnings through November of 2022, right? A couple of those I just finished. It can be June of 2023. Okay. What I know is through November of 2022, the numbers were good. And all I need to do now is check um, December through June. Let's say I go all the way to next October, right? What I know is through November 2022, the numbers are good. I know all the adjustments. I know all the ways that the way a buyer, according to Gap, would look at the business is different than how they record it in there. Um, QuickBooks. So it can sit on shelves for a year or more. When I was a buyer, I would see, and you've seen this all the time. There's a data packet that was done November of 2022. They had projections for the full year of 2022, and it's November of 2023, and you're still looking at the same data. Yeah. So that gives you a year of coverage for that one fee. Okay. And also, Ed, we do roll forwards for cost. Yeah. So I've got a couple of guys where each month we do a roll for and we just charge them time and material. I get you. Well, and that's what I was saying. So I'm looking at it and say, all right, it's going to be, you know, it's you know, from engagement to close, you know, let's say, you know, average six to nine months. And all right, at the beginning of the process, you know, how do we, you know, how, how does somebody do this and have the assurance that it's still good when I get to the back end of this? I get it. Um, well, I want to be sensitive to your time. And, you know, so does, tell me, I guess, you know, this is the, I don't want to say the elevator pitch, but, you know, tell me about Guardian, you know, all the, all the stuff that you're doing, where you're doing it, how, how someone can work with you, all, all the things that I should have asked you before. (laughs) No. So we made this business to be the most transparent, easy to work with firm out there because none of our clients have time to play around. Our sell side clients are making a bunch of money. Our buy side clients have a bunch of money to invest. So they need to be able to deal with us quickly. So you can go go to guardiandudiligence.com or type in Google Elliot Holland or guardian due diligence or anything close. I think I've done enough work on Google to (laughs) get get me up there first. Heck yeah. And on our website, you can see all about me. You can download our sample reports. You can not only see what services we do, but we have our prices transparently stated on our site. So there's no guesswork there. You can set up a call with me or you can tell me to call you within 24 hours all on my website. Okay. 
Um, in terms of how we function and different, I mentioned that we bring sort of a deal lens to quality of earnings and accounting products. So what that means is whether you're a sell side owner or a buy side investor, we'll be speak. I'll be speaking to you because I still talk to each of my clients as a risk understanding individual talking to you about an accounting service that will help you make a business decision. And then I think particularly for your audience, Ed, we wanted to do something special. So um, we have a 25% discount for anybody nice. who's listening to this podcast nice. or, or you end up referring to us. And I think what that is to do is just, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, it's worth your investment to do my service. What I'm saying is I'm willing to invest 25% if you're willing to put up the other 75% yeah. and that's, that's protect your $10 million yeah, that's, and, and do the right thing. That's, that's sweet of you. And, and I, and I really do appreciate it. I'm certain the audience does too. And I, I, I jumped ahead and I shouldn't have, and I'm not going to make you say it all over again, but one of the things I, I believe that, yeah, we, we started talking about the SBA SOPs and the business yep. valuations. And I, and having done them for years, you know, way back early in the career, I mean, I just, you know, does it pay for itself? Does it pay for, uh, pay, pay a salary? Does it, you know, capex? And do I get the debt coverage ratio? I, I to me, I, I read a statistic like 97% of the business valuations that are done actually it make it you know and, and right. so it's like eureka yeah imagine that so i'm just which is way smaller than the percentage of deals that don't do well right. so what happened right and and that's where i'm heading with this is like i mean do you, you ever foresee that this becomes you know kind of the standard of deal making you know what i mean i think it will i think what's happening ed is it used to be the buyers and the sellers were all millionaires. And so people mm-hmm. didn't feel so bad about either one of them losing money, yeah. particularly like the buyers and the banks. You know, if you lend, you know, a hundred bucks, you're only going to do it if somebody on the equity side is putting up, you know, 50 bucks. So yeah. typically the banks could look at a private equity firm, a very well capitalized, known capitalized entity to say they're backstopping. In 2022, we're getting a lot of independent sponsors, independent mm-hmm. business buyers, yeah, you're right. search funders and the rest that are coming into the market. And so these lenders, they may still get, you know, 20% equity, but it's from a single person who can declare bankruptcy, who can be hard to collect from who you don't know how well capitalized they are. So I think what's going to happen is SBA and other lenders over time are going to say, Hey, look, we used to be able to not worry about QOEs for Mm -hmm. deals under 20 million, 30 million. But now why would we not (laughs) put ourselves behind the eight ball to not require these things? And by the way, they take too much time for a bank to do on every deal they look at because the deal a bank only does some portion of those deals. Let somebody else manage that, take on that risk yeah. so that when we get it, the bank, it's a clean set of financials. It's cleanly known what's up and we can make better credit decisions as a lender and less risk. And I think the other piece that's coming, Ed, we're getting so much better data as online yeah. systems yeah. and tax systems get aggregated and people are AI and everything. How can you go by these old school standards and not take into account some of this data that's available? hundred percent. Well, and I'll tell you, and the, the point of the question was, I mean, at least two times this year, we got, we got a commitment letter from a bank that said, Oh, by the way, you're going to supply us a Q of E. Yeah. yeah. And, and that we hadn't seen that before, and we've been doing it a long time. So, well, I'll tell you this on Twitter: you've seen it. I, I wasn't a fan of Twitter. I thought it was all fake. Okay. Um, and um, some buddies in the small and medium business world said, "Hey, there's a whole community here. You got to check out." So, I got on Twitter a little under a year ago, and when I first got on, the general consensus was you don't need to do QOEs on deals under two million bucks, five million bucks in purchase mm-hmm. price. And that's what everybody was saying. And I kept asking people, so who out here can lose a million bucks? Yeah. 
Who out here can lose a million bucks? Can you lose a million bucks? No, Particularly when it's personally guaranteed. Personally, you got your family's house, your kid. You can't even take your kid to the abdomen doctor because right. you got to pay the bank. Right. And now the top lenders have also said you need to get a QOE. So they've said it in terms of they're favorable and that's what they desire. I think soon it's going to get written into standards right. because here's the other thing, Ed, and you know this. A novice will call a banker a financial expert, but a, a banker that p most people interact with is a salesperson who works at a bank. So they're not super financially inclined like my CPAs are. And so I think as that information starts getting out and people start realizing that some of the promises bankers are making are only to the depth of their financial understanding. Yeah. They'll start realizing I need to protect myself. Well, and at the same time, I mean, as a taxpayer, I, if you're lending my taxpayer money for somebody to buy a business, I want you to, I don't want you to default. I mean, as a taxpayer, am I really grateful for all the, uh, the, the cost of capital and what happened? Thumbs up all the way. You know, as a deal maker, thumbs up. As a taxpayer, it's like, oh man, I, I really would like some assurances, you know? I don't want people taking risks with my money. Amen. And you know, right now the SBA is lending out only requiring 10% equity. So 90% debt on all these deals. Yep. And the government is backing and covering guaranteeing 90% of that. You're absolutely right. I don't want to do that on speculative transactions. Okay. I want to do that on home runs on unsure things all day long. All right. Well, as I finish this thing up, I always ask everybody one final question. So what is the one piece of advice you could give listeners that would have the most immediate impact on their business? You know, so I got to say something that's related to my business <laughs> and not general, yeah. but I, I would say, don't be cheap on a $10 million transaction. Yeah. I get that. That just, just, just go home and think about all the times that you were cheap on a transaction way bigger than the other ones you typically do. And how did that work out? That's not well. No, no. Buyer, seller, anyone. Huh. When you're doing stuff of this magnitude. Yeah. Make sure you get it right. Right on. So you, you shared a little bit about where we can find you. Um, I'll make sure that's in the show notes. Um, sure. You know, I, I've, I've been following you a long time and I'm, well, for certainly the last year. And, and you know, it was just great to talk with you, man. I, I, I appreciate you going way over time. I, <laughs> but uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And I'm certain the listeners will too. Hey, Ed, I've enjoyed this. Um, you can hear it on my voice. I love what I do. You do. These stories aren't just accounting spreadsheet <laughs> things. These are really people's real lives, real money. Right. And um, I built this thing to help people get paid on these deals, but also make wise investments. And I stand by that every day that we go to work. So I, I'm excited to work for any and all of you and serve you in your Amen. transactions. And I'm hey. glad you gave me the chance to be on this podcast. Oh, man, you're the real deal. I, I, you know, you never, you never really know, but you, you, you absolutely blew it out of the water. So I appreciate your time. Thank you. Ed. Thank you for joining us today on the, how to sell your business podcast. If you want more episodes packed with strategies to help sell your business for the maximum value, visit howtosellabusinesspodcast.com for tips and best practices to make your exit life-changing. Better yet, subscribe now so you never miss future episodes. This program is copyrighted by MISO Inc. All rights reserved.